Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know when you're listening to an amazing true crime podcast and it's an entire investigation and you hear some crazy stuff on it and you just need someone to talk about it with? Well, we've been there. Podcast listening can be a lonely business. That's why we started the True Crime Podcast Club. It's kind of like a book club, but for true crime podcasts. Our first series will be The Cold Podcast, which is all about the disappearance of Susan Cox Powell. We'll listen to every episode and have a weekly live stream inside a private Facebook group to do a deep dive discussion of all the episodes. To register for the club, go to patreon.com slash killerqueenspod and sign up for the $10 a month tier, which is called True Crime Podcast Club. That's your ticket to the group, and we'll be launching the first week of November. That way you'll have some time to get the first week's episodes in. Again, it's patreon.com slash killerqueenspod. Can't wait to see you there. We are back. We're one back and two on part two. Two, two, two things here. One, we're back. Uh-huh. Two, we're on part two. Oh. <laughs> do you get it now? I do. Was it better? I wouldn't call it better. I just get it now. <laughs> I'm just trying to be a part of the conversation here. That's all. Making some dad jokes. It's cool. It wasn't even a dad joke. I think it was. Was it really? A little, yeah. That's okay, though. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, we're back. We're back. One, two, part two. Shut up. <laughs> Last we left off, we were at a couple days before the... Murders. Yeah, the murders. And Andrea had had a follow-up appointment with her psychiatrist where they told her that Andrea was not improving. She said, let me adjust the dosages a little bit and send you home. Everything looks great. Bye. Bye-bye. Say hi to your mom and them. Bye. Now we're back to June 20th, 2001. Andrea's at the police station, and she gives a full confession where she details the events of the morning. And I was going to grab some of the audio from this so you could hear her talking. It's kind of hard to understand her, but if you go on that YouTube thing and watch it, they've got a good a good bit of it. And the psychiatrist that's interviewing her in this video, his name is Park Dietz, and you're going to hear more about him later. But um, there's also a transcript, I'll link to it in the show notes, but there's a transcript that his company put out. It's not a total transcript, it's excerpts of the interview, but it's more than what's in the video. What's really shocking and kind of like shakes you to your core is that while she's giving this confession, she is as matter of fact as it comes. She's discussing the murder of her five children, and she's not talking about they died in their sleep, you know? She violently held them underwater. One of the people, this is just horrible, but one of the, might have been the district attorneys or something, said 
you know, her, by the time she got to the last child, he was drowned in water that her, that his other siblings had vomited and defecated in Mm. through the process of death. It's just, it's, it just defies everything that you, you think could happen, you know? She said that that morning she got out of bed at 8, 10 a.m. and her husband, Mary, Luke, and Paul were already awake. Sometime after her husband left, so he, Rusty, left around 9 that morning. They all had breakfast and he left at 9. Andrea said she filled the tub with water. She started by drowning Paul, who was three and a half years old. He, she put him on the bed. Then two-year-old Luke. Then five and a half-year-old John. She puts all of them on the bed. Then she drowns six-month-old Mary, and she leaves her floating in the tub when she calls for seven-year-old Noah. Mm. He's seven. According to Time magazine, Andrea told police that Noah tried to run away when he realized what was happening. She said she had to chase him down and then drown him in nine inches of cold water. Because Park Park Dietz asks her, what's the temperature of the water here? She's like, I don't know, whatever it came out as cold. It's very bizarre. Because everybody reported that she was such a good mom, you know what I mean? So, like, I could never put my kid in cold water. I, I actually agonize over the fucking temperature of bath water almost every time. I'm like, is it too cold? Is it too hot? Like, <laughs> I want it to be perfect. I put, like, 20 of those little rubber duckies in there to make sure that, like, it doesn't turn red and, like, whatever. And, you know, I put myself in or, like, my foot in or my hand or whatever first just to be sure. And, like, you know, it's just... And I'm sure that that's how she was when she was well, because that's the way they talk about her. It's just, it's very, it's very, very strange. Yeah, the disconnect from that to this. Yeah, and and the fact that Mary is still in the water, that's another thing. It's like, typically you want to shield your child from anything that's going to scare them, you know, or, or, I mean, that's not just scary, that's terrifying. And to and you don't want them to see something that like if something happened to their sibling, you don't want them to have to see that, right? But she's dragging him back in and just being like, Here, this is just what has to happen. Park Deeds asks, Did the children struggle? And Andrea says, Yes. Park Deeds says, Every one of them, she says, except Mary, she wasn't strong enough. Noah the most, because he was the biggest. Did he say anything else to you? When he came up out of the water, and said something, but I didn't know what it was. It was like, I'm sorry, and I didn't hear the rest. I don't know if he was saying I'm sorry or what. Can you imagine? No. The poor and child. She's, she's saying it like it doesn't matter anything to her. does not mean anything. Right. No emotion, no nothing. Yeah, nothing. And it, it just, it's, it's just sad. Like, these are your children. I just don't understand it. So all of this is happening. She kills the children. We know that she then calls 911. After she calls 911, she calls Rusty. The cops get there. When Rusty got there, the police wouldn't let him go in the house. So he's like trying to look through the window. He's trying to see what's going on. He knows that something's wrong with kids, but at first he didn't realize that they were dead. And I guess he was notified at the scene because then he just like fell to the ground and was like banging his hands against the ground going, how could you do this? How could you do this? Like screaming. And the officers ended up leading Andrea out the back door to get her to the police car because they didn't want them Something to like, that, yeah. yeah, come close to each other. So she, we know she got interrogated there, arrested and booked. The day after the murders though, 
Rusty talks to the press, and that's when he tells them about her mental issues and expresses sympathy towards Andrea. So, at first, he was very angry with her, understandably so. And then the next day, everybody was really surprised when he came out and supported her and said, look, technically she did this, but it wasn't her that did this. She wasn't in her right mind because she never would have done that, the woman that I know and that I married. So, he was just saying she had a lot of mental issues and that's why this happened. And there were two very sharply divided camps. People either felt sympathy for her and her mental illness, or they thought she was a cold-blooded murderer and loathed her. One week after the murders, a funeral was held for the children. Andrea was not present at the funeral. Instead, she was undergoing a battery of tests and started on an antidepressant and antipsychotic medications. As Andrea gained mental clarity, she began to reveal the disturbing reasoning that led her to drown all five of her children. Once she got, and we might get into that, but once she got more mental clarity or got a better grip on maybe being who she was prior to when all the psychosis kind of manifested itself, did she, was she remorseful? Did she feel bad? Does it say? She, she felt... From what she says, she felt like that what she did was the best thing for them. She did what she had to do. Yeah. She did what she needed to do to save them from Satan's influence through her over them. Okay. Is kind of what she goes with. Mm. So when she was asked, what were you trying to accomplish? Andrea told the psychiatrist that she was trying to preserve the children's innocent years And she wanted God to take them up to heaven. With more prodding by the psychiatrist, Andrea revealed that if she hadn't taken their lives, that her children would have continued to stumble along and would have eventually ended up in hell. And she believed that, like, one of her kids was going to be a serial killer. One of her kids was, you know, it was like she had these things for each of the kids that was going to, she was really fearful that was going to happen. When the psychiatrist delved further into the idea that the children were stumbling, he asked Andrea about what things had led her to think that they weren't right. And that's when she told them about, and we talked about this a little bit last time, the silly stuff they were doing. They weren't obeying. They weren't using manners. And she said they weren't being, they weren't righteous. And when he said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, they weren't doing the things that God likes. Defense attorney Wendell Odom said that the only question that Andrea asked him over and over was, what are we going to plea? She was eager to plead guilty so she could move on to getting punished because she was a bad mom. Oh, my God. Yeah. So so here here's that like kind of it's a little bit of a catch 22 because the prosecution is saying, well, she knew right from wrong. She knew that what she did was illegal. She knew that she was going to go to jail for it. And she knew that she needed to be punished for it. So she's she's legally sane because she knew right from wrong. And while she did know that it that it wasn't socially acceptable, I think that she believed, I think she fully believed that she was doing what was I think that she thought what she was doing was right for the soul for the sake of her children's souls and yeah. yes, their afterlife. Yeah, because she was very sick, you know, she was not, she was not well and she was not using rational thinking at that point. Yes. 
during videotaped interrogations, it's very clear to see that Andrea is unwell. So if you watch those videos, again, you're going to see somebody who's lost a ton of weight, who is unkempt, who they even described her eyes as shark's eyes because her pupils were so dilated, like she didn't have any, any iris anymore. It was just like, it was like she wasn't there. And she just talked so matter-of-factly. It was just crazy, but it also seemed like she was zoned out almost. And they even, like, they even talk about, she talks about the movie Seven, talking about, you know, the Seven Seven Deadly Deadly Sins and all these things. And she said that kind of influenced her in some way or, like, that was just something that she thought about a lot and all these things. But Dr. Perrier said that upon entering the courtroom, Andrea was the sickest person that she'd ever seen. Andrea was wearing the typical orange jumpsuit uh, that the prisoners wear. Her shirt was falling off her shoulder. She wasn't wearing a bra. She obviously had not bathed, and her long brown hair was in her face. She was visibly shaking. Dr. Perrier's first thought in regards to a diagnosis was postpartum psychosis. According to postpartum.net, postpartum psych- or depression I'm sorry, postpartum depression affects approximately 15% of women after childbirth. I feel like that's got to be a low number. Well, and I also think that if that's a low number, that is, it's amazing to me. I mean, I've never, ever doubted how strong you have to be to have a child, like to bear a child and all of the effects and the toll it takes on your body. But if 15% is is a low number, 15% is a lot just all by itself. Like, mm-hmm. this is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if they're taking into account postpartum anxiety as well, because that's a super real thing. And, and I think it's getting more your... and more common. Yeah, you've shared that on social media as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just so many women are affected by these issues. Uh, postpartum psychosis is rare, though. And according to postpartum.net, it occurs in approximately one to two out of every 1,000 deliveries, which still feels like not that rare to me. There are so many people on this earth. Yeah, exactly. I'd, think I'd really rather that number be one to two out of every one million. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Like, that seems low or like a low number of deliveries. Uh, postpartum psychosis is typically sudden and within two weeks of delivery. Dr. Perrier said that postpartum psychosis usually includes delusions, and those delusions are typically centered around the child. Postpartum.net lists other symptoms of postpartum psychosis as feeling very irritated, hyperactivity, rapid mood swings, decreased need for or inability to sleep, paranoia or suspiciousness, and difficulty communicating at times. The website also says that with with postpartum psychosis, there's a 5% suicide rate, and a 4% infanticide rate. Mm. Both postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis are treatable and temporary. While the defense is attempting to build their case for an insanity defense, the state moves forward with trying to find evidence of guilt without any caveats like insanity or mental defects. They claim to have evidence that up to a week before the murders, Andrea knew right from wrong, and they wanted to seek the death penalty. Three months after Andrea is arrested, a jury determines that she's competent to stand trial. However, if Andrea is to be held legally responsible for the deaths of her children, she must first be found as clinically sane. 
In Texas at that time, the criteria for an insanity defense was that someone has to have a mental disease or defect and that person didn't know that what they were doing was wrong. Their guidelines were considered to be among the toughest to meet and the insanity defense was used less than 1% of the time. And then of that 1% of the time people used it, only 26% of the cases were successfully argued. That makes sense to me for it to be Texas because I love Texas as a state. It's beautiful. Some great people there. I would never commit a crime in Texas, not Uh one time. Because they don't play. No, they don't play. They're not going to, yeah, they're not going to fuck around. And you're not getting off with an insanity plea there either. Which, I'm sorry, I don't know if that's incredibly fair. I don't, I I think that harsh punishments um, are necessary sometimes. But when it's something that is legitimately out of someone's control in the sense that there's mental illness at play. Yeah. Or, you know, in play, I don't understand. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll discuss it more. It just seems like of anybody who would meet that criteria, it seems like it would be Andrea Yates, right? Yeah. She's, She's been to mental facilities for inpatient treatment more than a handful of times now. And she's been on very powerful antipsychotic medications. Like, it's, I feel like she would meet that. But it, the legal, legally sane thing really is just, it all has to do with the law. It doesn't really have to do with the mental stability of somebody, which doesn't really make sense to me, but. Assistant District Attorney Joe Ownby said in the documentary that there are millions of people with five children that work, their husbands are abusive, and or there is some degree of mental illness, and yet they aren't murdering their children. Like, yeah. That's very true. Yeah. but Not what we're talking about. Exactly. Not what we're talking about. Because we've got somebody here with with psychosis. Okay, so there's your difference, dude. Like, you're comparing... Yeah, you're comparing apples to automobiles yeah like something really like not even oranges yeah exactly attorney wendell odom said that this case wasn't just one thing that triggered andrea instead it was a number of factors but the primary trigger was the birth of children and then the religious delusions eight months after the murders andrea yates's trial begins the state tries her for three of the five murders and holds back the other two in case the first trial doesn't go their way We've seen that in other cases. If they were to try her for all five at this time and lose, they could not try her again and she'd walk free. So they, they want to make sure that they can they can lock her not up. putting all their eggs in one basket. Yeah. Ownby stated that his main goal was to keep the jury focused on the fact that Andrea knew the difference between right and wrong, whereas Odom, so Ownby is the prosecution side, whereas Odom, her defense, wanted them to see that she may have known the difference between right and wrong, but Andrea's sense of right and wrong were different than that of other people. Absolutely. Once Andrea met the Warneckis, her sense of right and wrong was corrupted. While both sides agree that there is a mental illness in play, the state points out that Andrea prepared to do this and took steps to make sure that the murders were successful. She chose the time between 9 and 10 a.m. when her husband was not home to interfere. She chose the method of death and then had to fill up the tub to at least nine inches, according to Andrea's account. 
And she even chose the order in which her children would be murdered. The prosecution claimed that Andrea purposely left seven-year-old Noah for last because she knew he was the biggest and may have put up the biggest fight. Had Noah been the first and started to fight back, he could have alerted the other children and then maybe the next oldest, John, could have gotten out of the house and gone for help. The state claims that she executed her children in a methodical, organized manner. Park Dietz, the psychiatrist that interviewed Andrea in jail, testified for the prosecution. So Dietz was on the stand for two days, and he even used a PowerPoint presentation to illustrate how he reached his conclusions and a video to show his interviews with Andrea in the Harris County Jail. Before you did it, he asked Andrea during one videotape session, did you think it was wrong? She says, no. Dietz asked, why did you not think it was wrong? Andrea answered without hesitation, if I didn't do it, they would be tormented by Satan. It was a bad choice, she continued. I shouldn't have done it. She began to sound regretful regretful as the camera recorded the interview. There was distress, but I still felt I had to do it. Dietz says, as you drowned each one, did you think it was the right thing to be doing? And she nodded yes. He asked that if she thought about heaven while she was drowning them, and she said I was praying they would go there. She said that she called police because she knew the murders would be perceived as bad, despite her higher purpose. Now, Andrea also told Dietz that she believed she was psychotic when she thought, she, when she thought the devil had guided her. He left when I committed my crime, she said. Dietz asked why Satan would leave her after she had obeyed him, and she said he destroys and then leaves. And, you know, he asks her a lot about these kind of things, and she just, I don't know. She she always answers without hesitation. It's always just like, they needed to go to heaven. They would have gone to hell. However, though, and the district attorney does point this out, she never says, I saved my children. She says, I killed them. So, I don't know. They're trying to use that as like, well, she knew that what she did was wrong. The defense, on the other hand, claims that the mental illness would have made it impossible for Andrea to tell the difference between right and wrong. They even played a tape of one videotaped interrogation that demonstrated the delusions that Andrea was experiencing. In this tape, she describes a different morning with her children. She said they'd been eating some candy one morning, and we had the TV on cartoons, and it just flashed a scene where the comic, the cartoon characters, were talking to us. They were saying, hey kids, stop eating so much candy. And then the set flashed, and it went back to the program. Andrea believed that this was a special message for her family. So she's seeing stuff everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like... I don't know. And Park Dietz said in his testimony that he thought her her psychosis didn't start until she got to jail, that it it did not start before the murders. It only started after. I'm like, well, where are you getting that? Yeah. I don't understand how you can look at all the evidence and say that. No, I don't either. Andrea also said that she tried over and over to get rid of the devil but the only option left that could save her children was for her to kill them and sacrifice her own eternal life. She said, I was afraid Satan would ruin my children through his, through himself, and maybe that I even had some Satan in me. During all of these taped interrogations, Andrea's calm and almost completely emotionless. She says everything is a fact with a very flat tone and affect. She's videotaped over the course of weeks and months, and as the time goes on, Andrea looks more and more stable. 
Her first interrogation immediately after the murders wasn't recorded. So when the jury is seeing her in these videos, they're seeing her on medication. And Dr. Purrier said that it may have benefited Andrea for her not to take her medication during the trial so the judge could see, you know, that mental state not treated. But she also says that it's apparent that Andrea was ill when she was younger, but the symptoms were more subtle. I mean, that's a thing that's like, of course, you're not going to make this woman suffer and not medicate her. Like, you have to. It's the right thing to do. But it was almost like they wondered if the jury needed to see that so they could see that this is really somebody who is suffering and who is not just like an evil person. Because there are people who will try to use an insanity plea and not, Of course, yeah. But that's not what was happening here. So to get get a little bit of sympathy and see her as a person who is actually struggling. The defense said it was important for them to make the jury understand that they weren't focusing all of their energy on the devil made me do it kind of thing. However, everyone agreed that the biggest hurdle was the pictures. It was hard to move past the images of the kids in pajamas and of a young boy face down. District Attorney Ownby said that he was confident that the insanity defense would be thrown out, and after three weeks of testimony, the jury was given their orders and sent to deliberate. On March 12, 2002, exactly one year after Andrea's father died, and after two hours of deliberation, the jury came back with their verdict, guilty on two counts of capital murder for Noah, John, and Mary. Before the penalty phase began, Andrea's defense team attempted to have a mistrial declared over inaccurate testimony given by Park Dietz, the psychiatrist who testified for the prosecution. Park Dietz, by this point, had opened his own, like, forensic consulting office. He had been a psychiatrist, so this is in uh, 2001. He had not practiced since, like, the 80s, and the last time he had dealt with anybody who had a postpartum issue was in like the late 70s so i'm gonna just guess things had changed at this point yeah right so he didn't have a lot of experience with this particular issue right but he had testified on cases for susan's like susan smith uh jeffrey dahmer case so he had been called as an expert witness before in one of the things that he also did though like he has this forensic consulting company but he also worked with the show Law and Order as a consultant for them. He would, you know, I guess help them with different psychological issues that they wanted to talk about in the show or whatever. So during his testimony, he told the jury that, as a matter of fact, the Law and Order episode that inspired Andrea to drown her kids in the bathtub aired shortly before the day that this actually happened. So what he had said was there was this, you know, episode of Law and Order, a woman drowned her five kids in a bathtub, and then she got found, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. So he says she had, this is premeditation. She planned this and she used this TV show to inspire her because it showed her that she could maybe get away with it. So... They, I mean, the prosecutors used that piece of the testimony, like, as a huge part of their closing arguments to prove that premeditation. As it turned out, though, the defense lawyers learned that the episode that he described had never aired, and the plot line was different than he recalled. 
So when they prepared to call the show's producers as witnesses to persuade the judge to declare a mistrial, Park Deet sent a letter to prosecutors acknowledging his error. My memory about the content of the show was incorrect. I was confounding the facts of three filicide cases I worked on, Susan Smith, Amy Grossberg, and Melissa Drexler, and two episodes of Law & Order that were based in part on those cases. <laughs> Additionally, he had been wrong about being told directly that Andrea watched the TV series. So he had actually read just in another doctor's report at one time that Rusty said one time that his wife liked to watch every episode of the show. <laughs> so he says, I also wish to clarify that Mrs. Yates said nothing to me about either episode or about the Law and Order series. So Cotton, two lies now? Is this what we're doing? Yeah. So he's saying, you know, I don't recall. I can't recall. Like, whatever. But what he's saying is, I got up on the stand and said that I knew for sure that she watched the show. So I know for sure that just before the murders happened, this episode would have aired. And I can guarantee you she watched it. I mean, he's he's taking a lot of steps to say that this had a lot to do with it. When now he's going back and saying, oops, I messed up on what it was actually about. And furthermore, I don't even know if she still watches the show. Right. Like. Nobody said anything about that. Three days after the verdict, the jury reconvened to determine a sentence for Andrea. Everyone on the defense's side wanted to see her live and get the help she needed. She was facing either life in prison or death by lethal injection, and her fate was decided after 40 minutes of deliberation. The jury decided on life with the possibility of parole. And then Andrea was sent to Skyview Unit in the psychiatric prison, and she'd be eligible for parole in 40 years from then, which would have been 2042. In October of 2003, Andrea was placed on suicide watch because, again, she started refusing to eat. In 2004, Rusty filed for divorce from Andrea. That was finalized on March 17, 2005. In the divorce, Andrea got $7,000 cash, the right to be buried next to her children, and a nursing chair. In January of 2005, the Texas First Court of Appeals reversed her conviction. Their reasoning was that psychiatrist Park Dietz, Park Dietz may have prejudiced the jury by providing that erroneous testimony. And during her first court appearance for the appeal, which was J January 9, 2006, she pled not guilty by reason of insanity. In February 2006, the judge approved her bond of $200,000 on the condition that she voluntarily commits herself to Rusk State Hospital for psychiatric treatment. In 2006, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity and admitted to the psychiatric hospital. In 2012, Andrea was denied her request to attend a weekly church service outside of the hospital. And in 2014, she and her doctors put in a request for her to attend outings with other patients, but this was withdrawn due to media attention and public scrutiny. Andrea is now 55 years old, and she currently lives in the state mental hospital and may live there the rest of her life. So at least she is getting treatment. That's it. I could imagine... Maybe I can't imagine what it would be like for her to have to go, like, if, if she was granted to be able to go out on outings. Can you imagine? Like, there are so many people in this world that I would never want to switch lives with them because of stuff like this, you know? That would almost be like that show, movie, what, like, Blast from the Past or whatever, where, like, you know, because she's been incarcerated since 
2001 like things Mm -hmm. are so different now she'd probably walk Mm -hmm. outside and be like well it's like when we did michael alec and he got out of jail and the whole whole world has changed i mean Mm -hmm. he went in in the 90s and got out in after the internet has blown up after social media after everything well and i mean yeah and so many people know who she is i mean in texas She'd have to go to a different state. She might have to go to a different country. Yeah, I mean, even so, yeah. I mean, I would think she looks pretty different, but still. You'd have to go buy something different, you know? Like, you'd have to go, you'd have to have a different alias or something. Yeah, for sure. Because I can't, I don't know. And people, people are very, very, very passionate about cases that, either have something to do with them or have nothing to do with them Mm -hmm. and so i would think that she would have to go like um what is it called where you have a different identity and the police give it to you yes yeah yeah which is i mean remember i well we've no i don't think we've covered any of these cases but there are cases uh, that i've heard about i think it was the very first episode of Sword and Scale, my friend Hannah was like, hey, you need to listen to this podcast. And I was like, what? And I listened to it and I fell in love. And I was like, I only want to listen to 40 hours of podcast every week now. <laughs> but the first episode was a guy named Bruce Blackburn, maybe, or something in Canada. But he he had a psychotic, a psychotic, <laughs> a psychotic breakdown. And he had started having really bad delusions. He started... Uh, there was a lot going on with this guy. Well, he ended up murdering his entire family. Mm. And he was found not criminally responsible because he definitely was mentally ill. And so they sent him to a psychiatric uh, facility and he got help and they put him on medication and all these things. And then um, they said, well, I mean, he is doing great. So we're going to trust him just to take his medication for forever now. And Canada assisted him in changing his name. So where did he go? We don't know. Is he is he keeping up with his medication? We don't know. Is he still being treated? We don't know. Like, So they helped him to become invisible. Yeah, and I think they do that. I've heard more than one case where that's happened. And I know that Canada is very big on rehabilitation, and I think that's amazing. Yeah. But maybe we should have somebody that's like just checking in. Yeah, yeah, like parole, you know, something to at least say, I've got, I at least know where this person is, because without medication, this person is a danger to society. Not everybody with mental illness is, but there are people that are. And some people think if they're in a very good state on medication, that they don't need it anymore. Or whatever. Yeah. Or they will try to self-medicate with other things, alcohol, drugs, those things severely interact with and can counteract psychological medications. You know, it's like, it's just, it's such a huge risk to take for other people. I think that it's a good thing that they're at least keeping Andrea there because we do know that she has a history of saying, I don't need this anymore. I'm not going to take this medication. You know, so it's, and I mean, we do also know that her having a child severely exacerbates her mental issues. She's past that age now of childbearing, but still, 
I do think she needs to be monitored to be sure she's taking her meds because it's very, very possible that she wouldn't. And we know that when she's not medicated, she feels like she's going to hurt herself, other people. She had to claw herself to keep from hurting other people. Like, I mean, it's dangerous. And there's also, um, just so you guys know, I shared a thing on Facebook and Instagram. It was an article on Motherly where there was a girl, a woman, I'm sorry, who was having postpartum depression issues. And it and they do make you take this like questionnaire if you've never had kids or I don't know when they started doing this. But when you go to like, uh, I think your first OB appointment after, so your six weeks appointment, and then they do a questionnaire at like every one of the pediatrician appointments for first several months. They'll ask you, you know, are you crying more than you used to about the same or, you know, like, where are you with things emotionally? They'll ask you these questions. And I remember after I had my second child, my first child, I felt okay with all these questions, you know. The second child, I, I answered them honestly. And I think one of the questions is, are you having thoughts about hurting yourself or your child or anything like that? But um, the second time my pediatrician was like, hey, you know what? I think you should talk to your OB. I think you're having a little bit of depression issues. You know, maybe we should get that checked out. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't, you know, I just thought maybe this is normal because I think a lot of people do think it's normal. And that's one thing that came out of the Andrea Yates case as well. Before that point, there was not much offered to new mothers. And they did pass the Andrea Yates bill, which said that you've got to at least educate new mothers about postpartum depression and issues like that, whatever. So now they do the the um, questionnaire and everything like that. But this woman that this article focused on told her doctor that she was having some thoughts. She didn't think she knew she would never act on it, but she did have some thoughts about hurting herself and possibly her child. Like she just, you know, she was like, I think I need help. So they said, no problem, girl, go to the hospital. You know, she has her baby with her. Her baby's breast, exclusively breastfed at this point. They tell her to go to the hospital. And this is what she tells the article again. Like I said, everything with grain salt. Um, she goes to the hospital. She's waiting a really long time. Her mom was like, why don't you just leave? Like you can get, you know, you can just go see your regular doctor. You don't need to be at the hospital for this. Like that's a really long time. She stayed. Her husband met her there after he got off work they're at the hospital. Seems like everything's okay. They leave the hospital because she's like, you know, I've been waiting a long time. This is taking forever. You're right. I'm going to leave. They leave. They go pick up their older kid who I think her mom had. And then a neighbor calls her and is like, hey, why is there a bunch of cop cars at your house? She's like, what? They go home. There's cops there. And they took their kids from them because they had issued an, uh, an Adam, what do they call them? an atom alert it's not like an amber alert you know the code atom um which is a child is missing from this building so because she had taken her baby with her home and so they they did the code atom thing or whatever so the police go take their kids away and because her husband basically quote-unquote helped her kidnap her own child to bring it home her husband can't be with the kids either so they've taken their kids away from them because of this, because she asked for help, and and now they're going through all these legal battles just to even try to get their kids back. Like, it's so sad. There's just, and a lot of doctors, see what, what's happening there, what it seems like, 
if all of this is exactly how it happened, is that they're confusing her postpartum depression with postpartum psychosis. Like, it's not uncommon for women to have thoughts like that, fleeting thoughts. Andrea was saying that she was having complete hallucination. Like, this is very different than a fleeting thought of like, I wonder what it would be like for this baby not to be here. And that's why a lot of women don't say anything. Well, I was going to say, all that's doing is helping or making people terrified to, to talk about this. Yeah, so. exactly. And so what do you want to do? You want it to get worse or you want it to get better? So she talked to the doctor and said, hey, I think I need some help. What can we do here? And the problem is a lot of these doctors don't know the difference between all of the different um, diagnoses. They don't really know what to look for. And then they on top of that, don't know how to treat them. They've not been trained in it. So if you if you find that article on our Facebook or our Instagram, or you just go search it, it's I'm sure you'd be able to find it pretty easily. Um, there is a petition there that uh, we signed, and a lot of people have signed it, that says we need to do something about this and make sure that at the very least, that like OBGYNs and pediatricians, like these people know what to look for, how to properly screen and assess new mothers, and then how to properly treat it. Because if you're confusing it with something else, you're not going to treat it properly. And I, I mean, a lot of people commented on these things and all had stories of their own. And it's so sad because you're already going through so much having a new baby. You're not sleeping. It's just, it's a lot. So at the very least, these, these doctors, this, this is in their wheelhouse. This is what they should be dealing with. And if they're not sure, then then have you go see a psychiatrist. Have have them go to somebody who does know what they're doing. But do it in a safe way that you're not going to get your children taken away if it if you reschedule your appointment because of, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. If something I mean, happens. It's, yeah, it's definitely a, a touchy thing. And I do think that, you know, you do have to be really careful because if there are people that their children are in are in danger. Right. And it's kind of scary because that kind of thing can very easily be all um, situational. Or, you know what I mean? Like people, somebody's perspective, like, oh, well, I felt like they were in danger. Well, somebody else might not or perceive it the wrong way or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's really touchy, but I think that doctors at least having some additional training in it can make a big difference because I mean even you know we've I know we've talked about you know my situation a lot and I'm I feel really really blessed after reading that story that like that they just gave me medicine and said go on about your day because I wasn't having any I never had any thoughts of like wanting to hurt my kid or wanting to shake him. I was so mad at you. Nothing like that. You know, I've heard of women having those kind of feelings. I never felt anything like that. I just felt, and it wasn't even situations with the baby, but it was just after I had him, I would have panic attacks out of nowhere. You know, it was very small things that would make me have panic attacks. And I thought, this is just not the way I'm supposed to feel. And they, you know, continuously gave me the wrong medication and, you know, stuff that wasn't helping me at all. So it just, but I do feel lucky that, that nobody said, well, then you need to have your kids taken away because apparently that's a thing. I mean, that's really scary. So that is one thing that, that did come out of this case because it was, at that time, it was very misunderstood, misdiagnosed. And it unfortunately still is. And we're, 
almost 20 years later. But um, at the very least, they're they're giving women, you know, pamphlets and stuff just so they can know. I mean, sometimes if you don't know, you don't even know that it's that it doesn't have to be that way. Right. But I do think there's further we can go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. That's it. Well, thank you for telling the story and thanks for sharing your own personal experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you guys are probably sick of hearing it by now. I feel like one more time for the guys in the cheap seats, huh? (laughs) Okay. So I had a baby. (laughs) No. Yeah, so um, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.